one, two, three. Well, hello again. This is Jason from the Real Estate Investing Foundation podcast with Jason and Peely. Thank you so much for checking in with us again and listening. And if you like what you hear today, please go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating and review. And also, you can find us on YouTube. We have a very special guest today. Very happy to welcome Andrew Cushman to the show. Andrew, how are you? I'm doing well. Glad to be here. Good. Well, thank you so much for being with us. And a little more about Andrew. Andrew has run a real estate investment business full-time for the past decade after leaving his corporate job in 2007, just of course, before the Great Recession began. Andrew has completed 24 single-family transitions, uh, transactions, purchase, rehab, sell, all of which have had significant returns for both the business and investors. And then in 2010, he made a major shift transitioning to the acquisition and repositioning of multifamily properties and has successfully acquired and repositioned 17 or 1,796 multifamily units to date. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Andrew, welcome to the show. Oh, glad to be here. It, it's, it's been an interesting journey. Sure has. So, you know, we, we could touch on a lot of different things there, but let's just go back to the start because I, I don't know if you, you had anticipated that Great Recession or you're finding things just ticking with the market, but you, you made a jump out of your job in 2007. So what was it that really got you started in real estate? Yeah, you know, ever since I was a little kid, uh, I wanted to run my own business and, and do my own thing. I just had no idea what that was going to be. And um, so, you know, I got a, I got an engineering degree just to, to do a job that would pay decent and be something I could tolerate until I figured that out. And then, so I got married. My wife had the same mentality. We tried a variety of little businesses that, you know, made some money, but were really just kind of replacement jobs like vending or um, we tried flipping cars of all things, even though we have no clue about anything but the cars. That probably would have been disaster. So I'm thankful it didn't work. Didn't, we didn't get too far down the road. Um, you know, we tried making flavored popcorn in our house and like destroyed the kitchen, made some good tasting stuff. But again, we're like, okay, this is going to be a lot of work. Uh, so one day saw an article in the wall street journal about someone flipping houses and went and looked up the, you know, looked them up, looked up the, the, the person who had taught them how to do it. And my wife and I said, well, geez, this is something we, you know, we think we could probably do. And, uh, just did a ton of research and then went and learned it and said, all right, you know, this, this looks like something, you know, this, that was we decided that was me the next thing that we we're going to try. And, you know, me being an engineer, uh, yeah, you know, my my phone skills talking on the phone weren't the best, and so we you know naturally went into a business that relied on cold calling people in financial distress. So what we were doing is we were reaching out to people who were in pre foreclosure or you know about to lose their house to the bank. The bank hadn't taken it yet, but they said we're coming for it. And so I call them and say, "Hey, I'm a stranger. Let's talk about your financial problems." Which you know everyone's always happy to do that. And uh, so it took, you know, 4,576 calls, I think it was, to actually get that first deal. But when we did get it, uh, we fixed it up and resold it. And we made as much as I made all year at my job. And so we said, all right, this is it. There's no better time than now. Um, you know, my wife was still working. So we had, we, you know, when I, I, you know, I could quit and we could still have some income by selling that first flip, we had a year of my income in the bank. And he said, you know what, there, you know, 
this gives us some cushion. This gives us the ability to go ahead and, and cut my cord corporately and try to go for this full time. And uh, that's what we did two years later after, you know, the flips were going a little more consistently. My wife uh, quit also and became full-time real estate investor. And uh, we did do that knowing the recession was coming. Uh, everyone thought we were absolutely crazy, but we kind of looked at it contrarian and said, well, if we're going into a recession and with all the, everything locking up and all the problems that there's going to be, there's not going to be any other buyers. We're not going to have any other competition. And that really was the case. I mean, we could go out and buy stuff at 50 cents on the dollar and sell it at 80 cents on the dollar uh, all day long. And it was um, from that perspective, it was a great few years to be in real estate. Absolutely. And so were your parents entrepreneurial? Where did you get this sense of, of entrepreneurship? You know, when I was, when I was five or six years old, we'd go visit my grandfather. He lived uh, down on Cape Cod in the, in the, um, in the summers and then he lived near a golf course. And so every weekend we'd go down and he would take me, we'd walk around the golf course and collect all the balls that were in the, in the bushes and the trees. And then I'd go back and I'd polish them up and I'd take my little red wagon and go sell them back to the guys who lost them the day before. Right. And, 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 you know, I remember one day I made 17 and a half dollars and I, you know, good. There's actually a picture of me holding it. And, you know, as a five-year-old in you know, what the early eighties, that's a ton of money. Um, and so that, I think that just kind of instilled on me. Um, you know, my, my parents weren't entrepreneurs, but they're always, they're always very hard workers. They're always disciplined financially. And so, you know, those things all just kind of, uh, came together. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause we've, you know, I actually went to Lehigh university, a ton of engineers there and sometimes the analysis to death happens. So, so especially this, I, I see a very to the point, you know, 5,000, 4,576 calls, 1,700, you know, 1,796 units. I love the numbers there, but sometimes it paralyzes people from taking action. What was it that, that allowed you to, to mentally step over that and say, okay, I, I'm going to quit my job today versus uh, I'm going to wait another month or another two months or another week. Was it the opportunity that you saw with the market? Just how great that one deal was? What was it that you said, I'm doing it right now? It, you know, when, when we started the process, we said we will not quit until we do at least one deal. And then after that, if we don't like it, then we can quit. And here's the only thing that's truly failure is just quitting without doing anything. Um, so we gave ourselves that option. So once we did the deal, we realized, okay, we're not good at this, but we still made it happen. We can get better at it. You know, now that we've done a, we've done a flip, we have, you know, some income set aside. I, I definitely wouldn't recommend anyone go out and run out and quit their job and then say, okay, great. Now, how do I start in real estate? I mean, that, the, one out of a hundred people might be able to do that and, and survive. But for, for most, that's probably not the best idea. Uh, so, you know, we, we, we had, we had already proven the, the business model. Uh, and as a result, we had some cash to, to operate off of. And then there's a certain point at which you, you just have to do it. Um, you're, you know, you, you, you will, you'll never see every step on the ladder all the way to the top. I mean, you might see the top and you, you, so you just have to start taking the first step, the next step, you know, think of it like driving down a, a foggy highway, right? You can't see 10 miles down the road where you're going, but you can see a hundred feet. So you go a hundred feet. Well, now guess what? Now you can see the next hundred feet and you just got, we had, you know, we realized that that's how we had to do it. And then also, you know, we looked at what's the worst thing that could happen and what's the best thing that can happen. The best thing that can happen is something similar to where we are. And that's 10, you know, 11 years later, 
We, we still have our own business. Now we're buying large commercial properties, which back then, if you had said, hey, you're going to buy a $10 million apartment complex, that would have been, yeah, right. How is that going to happen? Other people <laughs> do that, not me, right? So again, I, I, didn't, I couldn't even see the end of the ladder. Um, and, and, you know, so you know, we, just, we realized, you know, that's the best that can happen. Well, what's the worst that can happen? Well, the worst that can happen is, is we, we burn up all the money we made from the first flip and I have to go back and get another job again. Right. I mean, that's the worst thing that was going to happen. So weighing those two against each other and realizing the worst case scenario usually doesn't happen. And it's also usually not as bad as you think it's going to be. Is we said, you know what, the upside outweighs the downside. There's, you know, there's not going to be a better time. Just, just do it. I mean, and it wasn't, I mean, my arms were shaking when I walked into my boss's office and told him I was, I was going to be leaving soon. I, I mean, it still wasn't, you know, it wasn't necessarily easy. We we're still a little fearful of doing it. Uh, but it just came to a certain point of, you know, the, the ben- potential benefits outweighed the potential risks. And I have to recap on that because that was priceless. Cause that, that's something that everybody needs to look at when they're in a position is just set out the worst case scenario, what could possibly happen. And then of course the best side scenario. And then you also gave yourself that we're, we're going to do one deal before we quit. And that that's huge because sometimes everybody thinks about it, but they don't give themselves actual steps. And that one deal, I mean, that that's awesome. Thank you for that. Yeah. We, that was our, our agreement with each other. We were not allowed to quit no matter how hard it was until we did one. Then if we decided it wasn't worth it, fine. So you read this article in the paper. You said, we're going to start cold calling pre-foreclosures, which of course is not that easy, of course. Knocking on doors and windows and yeah. So, I mean, how'd you learn to do it? Did you have a mentor? Were you watching other people do it? Or what was it that gave you the steps? And I guess that could lead into our multifamily conversation is that how'd you learn to do it? Was it trial and error or were you following what other people were doing? Yeah, I'm a big fan of, um, okay, so in the corporate world where I came from, R&D stands for, for research and development. What I like to say is R&D stands for rip off and duplicate. And I don't mean that in the, I don't mean that in the malicious sense. What I mean is, is especially in real estate, everything's been done before. There, I mean, real estate's very creative, but you're not going to do anything new that someone else hasn't already done. So go find somebody that's already figured it out, that's already executing at a high level, and you know, learn what they're doing, and then go duplicate it, right? So, so that's so that's what I mean by R and D. So that's what we did. We, um, you know, I'm I'm not a big fan of the gurus, but I also wouldn't completely throw them all in the trash. I think it kind of the truth is somewhere in the middle. So for the uh, single family pre foreclosure business, we actually um, found a local mentor that just taught small classes of like 10 to 12 people on how to do it. So we went and attended that class and then we hired a coach that was associated with her, uh, who was doing the business full time. Um, and, and I, we verified that 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 was his full time thing. He was doing really well, exactly what we wanted to do. So we hired him as a one-on-one coach and uh, so, you know, we, every, every, I forget the timing, but every week or two weeks or whatever it was, we'd get on the phone, we'd go over, you know, what we had done the previous time period, the results I'd ask them email or call them with questions. Okay. So, you know, a homeowner told me this, how, you know, how would you respond? And so we had constant feedback. And then also my wife would be sitting there listening to me make phone calls and I'd get off the phone and she'd be like, all right, honey, that was good. But next time, why don't you try this instead? So it was just, you know, we constantly tried to, I had an in-house coach and then a professional hired coach. And so when it came to multifamily, it was the exact same thing. Uh, it was 2010 and we had just had a really good year in 20, 2009. And we said, you know what, this is great, but it's not going to last forever. So, you know, the markets are going to change. The equity's going away. And we said, well, 
we, you know, we really think apartments are going to be the next big thing to start a, a, a positive cycle. And so we just, well, we just went to our mentor for the single family and said, hey, we think apartments are going to be the next thing that we should get into. Do you know anybody that we could learn the business from? And he actually said, yeah, I do. Um, and he connected us with a guy who had already purchased about 800 units. And uh, we hired him for and the same thing. You know, every, I don't, again, I don't remember the timing, but for a year, basically. And every year, every month or whatever, we had a scheduled call. And then we'd get deals and we, or we'd look at deals and go over them. And he coached us and mentored us through that, our first acquisition, which was a 92 unit vacant, almost fully vacant property on the other side of the country, which I don't recommend anyone do as your first deal um, and learn that way. And uh, then, you know, we got along so well that we ended up becoming business partners did, I think total, we've done five or six deals together. And then we've done uh, like eight or so more separately. And um, yeah, we've been doing apartments full time, I guess, six, seven years now, seven years. Yeah. And which is awesome about that, and, and one of the great things about coaching and mentoring, of course, you, you want to vet your coaches, make sure they're not just teaching it, they're actually doing it, but just the accountability factor. You're having these weekly or biweekly calls, you're getting back on the phone with them, telling them what you're doing, and if you get on that call and just say, oh, we haven't done anything, you're just, you're just basically wasting his time or wasting her time and, and vice versa. So Exactly. Well, and also, it helps you get over the, the, the fear of doing that first deal. Right. When you've got somebody experienced to walk you through it and kind of hold your hand. I mean, it's still scary, but it, you know, for, I, for us, I don't know if we would, we probably would not have bought a 90, 90 plus unit property as our first one without somebody, you know, really guiding us through it. And that was all syndicated. I mean, we didn't, we didn't have the money to go, just go do that. Um, but, uh, it probably likely wouldn't have happened without someone to kind of guide us through. Yeah, absolutely. Especially almost vacant. That's it takes, it takes a little bit of effort right there yep. in regards to how your business has evolved since that first purchase. Talk to us about where you set your sights on multifamily today, what you're doing with today's market and where you're pushing your business going forward. Yeah, we, we've shifted a little bit. Um, now, you know, in the beginning, we were kind of distressed C assets. Now we're more like C plus to B assets. And we look at what I call stabilized value add, meaning the day we buy it, it's well occupied, it cash flows, we could do nothing to it and still be profitable. But if we spend three, five, $8,000 a unit, we can bring you know, increased rents, maybe 100, 125, and in some cases, actually closer to $200 a unit. And so now we've forced appreciation and value in those properties. Um, so one of the reasons we like that is we can get higher returns, but then also that sets us up to have a, a safe low basis um, in the property in case, you know, we get a recession in the next, I mean, it's a matter, I don't, my, my, my crystal ball is just as foggy as everybody else's. I don't know when the next recession is coming. It's just, they come and it, it could be something internally. It could be tariff trade wars. It could be, you know, a European nation collapses. Who knows what it's going to be? It'll happen eventually. And so this far into the cycle, we, instead of saying, all right, great, we can get this much upside. The number first thing that we do, and I would recommend anyone does, whether it's single family or multifamily is first evaluate what's the potential downside. Meaning if, a re when a recession comes, how is this property going to perform? How's this neighborhood going to do? How are the, how are the economic drivers in this town going to withstand a recession, right? If they're military um, education and medical, they're probably going to do okay because those things tend to not really be affected by, 
by a, a recession. So we say first, when we're looking at property, we say, well, what's the potential downside? If we think the potential downside is minimal or at least has some cushion, then we say, well, what's the potential upside? And then if we like the upside and think the upside is greater, then that's a property that we might be interested in. And again, we're, we're focused more on the kind of the B class space because in a recession, the really expensive luxury stuff, people who, if they're not sure of their jobs, they're not sure of their incomes, they start moving down. Uh, and then also in a recession, the very low end, the C class stuff, your kind of minimum wage, the first jobs that companies tend to cut are those. They're going to hang on to their highly skilled, educated workers, but the people that are just doing kind of the, the very, you know, the lower end stuff, you know, they tend to cut those jobs first or, you know, those people, uh, unfortunately, a lot of those folks are just live barely hanging on, you know, week to week to week. And if they get their hours cut by 25%, they can't make the rent. So now they're going to go move in with mom and dad or double up or anyway. So those properties tend to suffer. So that's kind of where and why we're focusing. So where you, what state are you located in? I'm in California. We invest in Texas, Georgia, the Carolinas, and North Florida. Awesome. And for people that are, you know, I know people that are scared to invest 10 minutes from themselves. How can you find, <laughs> you know, find a market that is thousands of miles away and feel comfortable? What's your high-level criteria to, to basically identify a market and build out a comfort level there that you want to invest? Um, I, you know, first I'm going to recommend a book, um, by, uh, actually he's a friend of mine, David Green. He's called, um, long distance real estate investing. It's, it's, it's a, it's a thick book, but it's because there's a ton of information in there. I would recommend anyone who's having trouble getting over the long, the investing out of your backyard fear, which is, it's legitimate. And, um, I would recommend reading that book because he in very detail goes through how to set everything up to overcome that. And it really applies to single family or multifamily. Um, but the, the, basically, I mean, with, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it was a different, it was a different game. I mean, you know, you, especially, you know, that's kind of like the, the running real estate joke is, is you know, like the California investor comes out to Ohio and we're going to sell him some crap houses and he's not going to know the difference, right? Well, that, that's basically what happened. Well, now with everything on the internet, I mean, Every, every piece of data you could ever want is, is accessible, you know, from, you know, sitting at your desk and uh, looking on your laptop and your pajamas and coffee, right? I mean, you, you, and then like what you can also do is you can do things like have people, you know, we'll get on um, like Skype or something and just do a live video walkthrough of a property. Right. So we've had situations where their apartment complexes, let's say maybe uh, there's a major plumbing issue or a major repair that was unexpected. It's as simple as have the contractor, you know, live feed on their phone and, and, and walk it through, which is 90% as good as, as being there. But the real key is, um, well, actually, I, sorry. So you asked how do we identify the markets? So the main thing we're looking for is population growth and job growth. And ideally it's going to be markets to have those two things that um, greater than the national average. So if the national average for population growth or oh, sorry, job growth is 1.9 and we're, you know, we see a metro that's 2.5 or 3.2, then that metro is probably going to do better than the rest of the country. Um, same thing for population growth. You know, for example, I think the, the, between the last two censuses, um, and the data is getting a little old, but I think the U.S. as a whole grew by 9.7% population-wise. The last city that we just purchased a property in over that same time period had a 10-year growth rate of like 29%, right? So it's growing three times as fast as the country as a whole. So if you've got people and jobs moving into a market, then 
that's going to keep your property full. And, 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 and like, you know, those are the two biggest things that are going to lead to a successful multifamily investment. Love it. And when you're going into these markets, what are some of the team members you're trying to surround yourself with to make sure you have the most successful investment? The most, most important one by far is, is your property management company. Um, they, they, cause I mean, the, the, the best deal in the world can be ruined by bad management. And so it's absolutely key to have good property management. Um, and so that, that's the most important one. Would you have and any then, questions before we jump onto the others to vet a property management company? Yeah, actually, you know, I haven't used it in a while cause I've, I've, we've kind of have our established relationships, but actually, yeah, I've got a questionnaire with like 27 questions or something like that on there. Um, but what, how I find the property management company is I talk to brokers and lenders and other owners and get referrals. And so ideally is maybe I talk to eight different people and say, give me the, you know, if I, if you were going to buy a B class property and you know, maybe you're looking at C or fill in, fill in the blanks for what you're doing, right? If you're going to buy a B class property, a hundred units, in this town, who would you hire to manage it? You know, who are the top two or three property management companies you would hire to manage it? I I go through that process with, you know, five, six, seven, eight different people. And ideally the same couple of companies are going to keep coming up over and over again. And so then I build a short list of two to three, and then I will do phone interviews with those companies. Um, Generally I try to do it with the owners. And then maybe in addition to that, someone mid-level because the regionals are going to have a big effect on your property. Mm -hmm. And then I'll narrow it down to maybe like one or two. And then I'll go out and physically, you know, go to dinner with them. And that dinner is, that dinner is an interview. And then I'll, then, then I'll select the management company that I'm going, that I'm going to use. And so the actual questions I'm asking you know, though they might change depending on what your goals are, but I'm going to ask things like, well, do you just do third-party management or do you own and do third-party management? Um, do you, what, what kind of property best fits your management style, right? You don't want a company that says, oh, we do everything because that means they're, they're not going to do any of it well, right? So like, the, for example, the company that we work with, their specialty is C plus to, to B plus, and that's all they do. Um, and, and they only do a hundred units on, on up. Well, that matches exactly what we do and, and they do it exceptionally well. So that, that's why that, there's, there's a whole list of questions that helps make sure that their interests are going to be aligned with our interests and that they're going to be a good fit. And so, you know, over time I've um, hired two property management companies and the one ended up being phenomenal. And the other one ended up being okay. They're, they kind of turned out to be glorified babysitters, meaning the, you know, if you hand them a property, they'll, they'll keep it going, but they're not going to really maximize its potential. Uh, and so we ended up letting them go and bringing the other company in. And now that one company manages everything for us and they do, uh, they do an excellent job. Well, that's a great topic. So how long would be long enough to give a property management time to try and prove your concept before you say, okay, I got to move? It kind of depends on the the state of your property when you when you get it and how many moving pieces you have. But generally, you know, that's probably one thing. I probably took too long to to make the switch to the other management company. Um, and part of it too was is they started off strong. The other the previous company started off strong, but then over time started getting weaker and weaker. Um, so I would say as soon as you realize things aren't being done 
the way that either you want them done or that they need to be done or that goals aren't being met, then it's, it's, it's time to make a change. It's making the change is always painful, but the quicker you get it over with, the better off you're going to be. And that applies to the management company or the actual manager on site or really any of the staff as well. Absolutely agree. And what would you identify as other key members that you have in the market as your team? Uh, lenders, definitely lenders. Cause without, without, without a good lender, your deal is not going to close. And with a bad, a bad lender will put you in a world of hurt because they'll, Unfortunately, I've seen it where everything's great, everything's great, everything's great, and then two days before closing, oh yeah, our committee uh, kicked this deal out. You know, it's like, well, it, no, 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 uh, no skin off their back, but you're holding the bag with legal costs and a and a hundred thousand dollar deposit, right? <laughs> That's gonna, so. Um, so a good good lender is critical. A good insurance broker uh, is, is is important. Um, good contractors, obviously, is another one. Um, but you know, those, what I, you know, and all of these people, it's, uh, it's the same process, right? I'll ask, you know, again, I'll go back to those brokers. I'll go to the lender. I'll go to the management company. Say, who do you, you know, who are some of your best contractors? You know, and you, you, every, you kind of use all the different team members to refer, like when you're trying to find a new team member, you use the other team members to give you referrals to figure out who the best you know, team person is for the, the spot you're trying to fill. So it's really the same process. Uh, but, you know, a good, good contractor is absolutely critical. Uh, and then, of course, we talked about the management. Uh, the, the property manager and the, and the maintenance guy that actually work on your property are key. That is one place um, I would advise everyone do not try to save money, especially these days, is by paying low wages. You will get what you pay for. Um, and I, I, you know, our, the, the, the amount that we budget for wages has gone up dramatically in the last two to three years as the market has tightened, but we found it's absolutely worth it. A really good manager will, will make your deal succeed. A mediocre or poor one, um, will not. And then you'll lose them to someone else down the road who offers them 50 cents more an hour. And anyways, awesome. And that's all great for building out your team. And now let's talk about you get the property and you find a property, you get under contract and, and you close. What are some ninja tricks that you're doing right now to maximize your property? Uh, you know, what we do is we focus, try to focus a lot on, on, on cosmetic upgrades where the, you know, the return uh, on investment is, is as high as possible. So we're generally not moving walls and, and, and taking things down to the studs and bringing them back up. We kind of like to, to minimize the risk as well. So, you know, number one is, is we actually try to have the contractors lined up to start work the day after we close. Right. So you, you know, generally with a multifamily in particular, you've got like usually give or take, you know, a 30 day due diligence and then 30 more days to close. That gives you 60 days during that 60 days. We are working furiously with our contractors. So by the time that the time we close, the scope is laid out, the materials are, 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 are spec'd, contracts are signed. They can be there the next day after we close and get working, get working. So a quick start. Um, that's one of the things that we, we always aim for. The other thing I see a lot of people miss is, you know, you see these beautiful properties are well rehabbed and you walk on site and the landscaping is horrible, right? It, you know, it's dead or they never put it in in the first place. They haven't mowed, you know, they haven't, they haven't mowed the grass in four weeks and there's dandelions and clovers and weeds and, you know, all kinds of things growing everywhere. Um, you know, we always do a big landscaping package and on a hundred unit property, we, I'd say on average, we'll spend 50, $60,000 on a landscaping package because that sets the tone and the look 
for your entire property. Because if people, if prospects and applicants and people who are looking at your community, if they don't like and feel good about the outside, they're never going to even care about going to see the inside. So you can have, you know, $20,000 interiors, but if your landscaping is horrible, it's, it's going to be a waste. You're, you're going to, you're going to lose return on what you did on the interior. So exterior is huge. That means your monument signs, your, your signage looks really nice and professional, probably a level above. If you've got a C property, put in a B class sign, right? Because the, someone drives by and they see that sign, they go, Oh, this is a B class property. If you've got a B class sign and a B class landscaping, they're just going to treat your property as if it's a B, even though it might not really be one. Um, so those are those are some of you know little things like adding shutters to windows, right? You know, of course they're fake. You know, no one actually does real shutters anymore. But um, you know, it's very you know me might pay depending on your windows anywhere from seventy five to one hundred fifty dollars a set. But the look and the improvement in the curb appeal is huge. Uh, just painting trim. I mean, little really common sense cosmetic things that you can do um, that just dramatically. It's, it's, I mean, again, it's not it's. Um, a lot of it's pretty like, well, duh. I mean, that makes sense. But it, the problem is a lot of people just don't do it. So it you- sounds like it makes sense, but I, I'll tell you what, what really is funny. We actually had our property management company uh, tour a property we're in Kentucky. They did a, a beautiful rehab on the interior of, you know, like 25% of the units. But the exterior, and they painted over the paint's already peeling four months later, and the landscaping is a disaster. So yeah. it doesn't matter how nice the units look by the time you got to get them through the landscaping, through that whole part up into the units. And by the time it, their minds already made up, you know, so it's, yeah, you're exactly right. And I mean, it's funny you mentioned that about the paint peeling four months later, that's actually another, uh, little, in a sense, little detail that can really mess you up is when you're working with the contract, ask them what kind of paint are you going to use right because there's just any old paint but then there's also what we use is called sure and williams super paint it will last for 10 years also though you have to ask them what kind of prep work are you going to do because if you just throw paint on something and you don't prep it it'll i you know we just toured a property where they had spent all kinds of money to this full paint job two years ago and the entire thing is just peeling and bubbling like crazy so if you don't make you know so if you just go with the cheapest bid that's probably what you're going to get. So don't, you know, so even though obviously we're, you know, especially in this market where everyone's fighting to save money and keep the budget down, make sure, you know, that the cheapest bid might be too cheap for a reason. So, you know, verify that you're, you're getting good value. You don't want to, you know, we're not, we're not looking for the lowest price. We're looking for the best value. And that's not always a, just a dollar sign. I love that. Yeah. Cheapest is not most time never best. And it goes on all the points, you know, paying, paying poor for your contractors, paying lower wages. And that absolutely stands out if you want it because you're, you're taking on investors money and you want to provide the best product you can for the people that live there. So absolutely. Thank you for all those. And now I have a, a very important question because I get this all the time and Peely gets this all the time. How do you work with your wife? <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it's funny. Whenever, whenever I've talked to people and they're like, and they find out, uh, you know, my wife and I work together and I kind of, they kind of give me that little, like, like, uh, so how's that working for you? You know, um, actually, you know, it's, it's great. Um, it really is. I mean, we, 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 we get to spend all day long, um, every day together, which I know to some people, unfortunately, that doesn't that doesn't sound like an appealing thing, <laughs> but, but for it is, um, well, number one is, is you have to, to learn to, to trust each other. Right. And, and divide and conquer is what we call it. Say, okay, you know, she has this and, and I have this and, you know, and, and we've built up confidence that, you know, what I, I don't worry about what she's got. 
I know it, I know it's going to be handled. I know it's going to be covered. I know it's going to be done. Um, and then it's kind of, you know, this kind of this, the same thing on my end of the, you know, it's almost like, Oh, Hey, we, we got an offer accepted in another $10 million property. Great. You know? So in, in, in one sense, um, it helps to, I think not be in each other's hair too much in the sense that you're not both trying to do the same thing, you know, figure out what you're good at and, 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 and can trust the other person with and kind of separate those things out. Uh, you know, that, that definitely helps a lot. Um, and yeah, doing, you know, doing what each person is good at. Like, you know, she, she told me the other day, uh, you know, she's like, uh, you know, honey, just you know, let KFC make the chicken. Right. So, you know, don't, don't split it up and, and outsource and, you know, and then take what you like and what you're good at. So it's great. That's and, great. And try to have grace, extra grace with each other too. Cause no matter what, you know, things are, <laughs> think things can be challenging. So. And that's, but that's absolutely great for any partnership, right? Is that you, you don't want to have two people that are both doing the same things. And it just correlation. like, just because it's your buddy and you, you feel like, oh, well, at least we can try this out together. doesn't mean it's the best option. Seeing what strengths you can bring to the table. But yeah, it was surprising that we, we really started to get that question more frequently than any other question is how do we possibly work together? Yeah. Well, you know, and I think another, a big part of it is too, making sure that you have the same goals. Right. So if, if your idea is, you know, we're going to get to, I don't know, $10 million net worth. Right. And, and, and her goal is, well, we want to get to, you know, we want to get to 20, but uh, we're going to start four different businesses and do this and that. And you're like, no, we're just going to do it. That that's going to cause friction and tension. Right. So you, you basically both, and then that's a conversation to have very early on and to keep having is, is making sure your goals are aligned and that you're heading in the same direction. Just, just that big picture piece will eliminate a lot of that friction and tension that I think people are alluding to when they ask that question of, well, geez, how do you guys work together? And, you know, so. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate that and we appreciate other couples doing it. It's fun. It's really fun to do with your partner and especially when your goals are aligned. And so now moving just to our last few questions again, thank you for your time here. If you have a, investor who's listening to this today and, and is trying to get started in this real estate journey, what is one actual step they can take today to get moving? Uh, well, decide if you want to be passive or active for one. So if you want to be completely passive, then, you know, that's when you talk to a, a syndicator, another operator, something like that. If you want to be active and be doing your own deals, First, go get David Green's book that I mentioned. Then also, if you want to do multifamily, go read David. Dave Lindahl has two books called um, Emerging Markets and Multifamily Millions. Read those three books. That'll give you a great foundation for just, you know, it won't, you know I mean, you're not going to go do a deal after reading. Well, you're not going to go buy 100 units after reading those three books, but um, it'll give you a good foundation. And then go out and, and start and pick a market. Figure out, well, where are you going to invest, right? And then once you have a market, say, well, what kind of properties fit my goals? Do I want to pick up a 10 unit and a 20 unit and, you know, and self-manage them and that's kind of my retirement? Or do I want to try to scale up and go 100 units or 200 units? And, and then once you, once you have identified your market and then the type of deals you're going you're gonna, to um, hunt down, start analyzing those deals. Realizing you know, that the first 100 you look at, you're probably not going to actually buy, but that's not the point. The point is you become good you at finding a great deal by looking at a hundred bad deals and that's how you you, know, you have to just learn by analyzing and doing so I, I would i would take those steps and 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 uh you know that's a good way to get started 
That's great. That's great. Do you have a morning routine or something to set your mind right? Um, yes, uh, yes and no. Um, I, I don't find the morning routine to be quite as critical as I know a lot of other people um, find it is. But with that said, you know, I'll wake up, uh, try to do it a little bit before the kids do, um, do some prayer, do some stretching, do a little bit. Uh, I do have some, you know, affirmations I read through. Uh, I'll do some, I'll do some reading or personal development. So like I'll, you know, read, a, you know, the next book that I'm going through. Um, and then, uh, you know, I'll take the kids to school some, some days and then, then come back and eat breakfast and go to work. So maybe couple times a month I'll get up early and go surfing before I get to work that always fires me up um, but uh, yeah that but the, what I described otherwise is, is kind of a, kind of my normal routine that's great and do you have some words you live by or maybe an affirmation you'd like to share uh, let your yes be yes and your no be no um, and you know basically you know every and, and that applies both in life and business you know people say well geez how do i get deals and well like when you're dealing with brokers for example if you say i'll get back to you on tuesday get back to them on tuesday and and even if you even if you didn't you know let's say something came up and you didn't have a chance to look at the deal reach out to them on tuesday said hey i really apologize i didn't get a chance to do this but i'll be back in touch tomorrow right let your yes be yes and your no be no you know if you say you're going to do something on tuesday do it on Tuesday. Um, all those little things really add up. It, it's, it's integrity. It's authenticity. It makes you easy to work with. It makes people want to work with you. So. That's great. And so what was your favorite flavored popcorn that you made? It would be one of the cheddar cheese ones, I think. Nice. Nice. Enjoy that. Well, Andrew, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. You've shared a ton of wisdom with everyone today. And if people want to connect with you, hear a little bit more about what you're doing, where's the best place for them to find you? Yeah, of course, I'm always, um, you can always do LinkedIn or bigger pockets, but if you actually want to, to start a conversation or, or actually really get connected, um, our website is, if you Google Vantage Point Acquisitions, it'll probably come up, but the URL is just V for Vantage, P for Point, and then ACQ.com. And there's a contact us um, tab on there. And if you just submit your information, that comes to my email and then um, you know, I'll respond back and we can go from there. Andrew, thank you so much. This has been awesome. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. It's great talking with you. Great. Well, this is Jason with the Real Estate Investing Foundation podcast. Thank you for everyone who listened today. Talk to you soon. Bye now.